Hi there, Duncan Green here. Well, Happy New Year and all that, 2023. Hope you had a good break if you took one. Um, mine was, I would say, quiet. The highlight was probably sorting out the spice cupboard and making and, and cooking some really not very good Christmas meals for various relatives. Um, yeah, life in the fast lane, hey-ho. But I'm back, work is up and running, the blog is up and running and it feels like I was never away. But I'm gonna catch up with a few posts that went out before Christmas and a few posts that have come out um, uh, since. So before Christmas, I reviewed a, uh, a great book by a good friend of mine, Harjun Chang, whose latest book, Edible Economics, I had to describe as a Christmas cracker. Um, he is a good friend. We first met in the 1980s, apparently, when he uh, and uh, he was then on the way to writing his first big breakthrough book, Kicking Away the Ladder. And I have to say, one of the joys of my professional life has been watching him flower as a writer and a public intellectual. And he's reached millions of people with his books. Um, and what he basically does is say we have to rethink economics and challenges the the, the orthodoxy, especially at the time that Kicking Away the Ladder came out. Came out. It was very very a sort of strict orthodoxy that structural adjustment was good, markets were good, state was bad. And Harjun just said, that's ahistorical. If you look at how his country, South Korea, or a bunch of other countries, including the US and Britain and just about everywhere else, Germany, Japan, have, have developed, they had a massive role for the state and they didn't just let the markets rip. So and along the way, since that first encounter in the 80s, his writing has just got better and better. And this latest book is a lot of fun. And he's got, as well as being an economist and a great writer and talk speaker, he is a serious foodie. So I've long since given up trying to choose the restaurant when we go out together um, because it's always disappointing for him. And he just he spends a long time getting the restaurant right. So the way the book's structured, each chapter tells the story of a different food stuff, and he loves all the nerdy historical detail, the rabbit holes. And then he segues from that into a more serious point about economics. So, you know, acorn eating pigs in Spain, why carrots are orange, the role of spices in creating modern capitalism. You know, it's a really fun book. Um, <clears throat> I'll just finish. I mean, I'm not going to go into detail. It's just a really good book. Um, when it comes to food, we all work out our own ways to source ingredients, often with constrained budgets, combine and cook them and come up with new ideas, whether it is tweaking your mother's recipe or adapting some dish that you came across on Instagram. It should be the same with economics. You don't need other people to tell you how to learn, critically reflect upon and use economics. You're all perfectly capable of figuring, figuring it out for yourself. However, as someone who has studied and practiced economics for four decades, I think I can offer a few pieces of dietary advice. First, a varied diet is important. Second, you should be open-minded about trying new things in economics. Third, as many of us do with food, you should check the provenance of the ingredients that you're using to cook with. Even though most professional economists would like the rest of the world to believe that what they practice is a science like physics or chemistry, economic analyses are often based on myths, facts that are technically correct but misleadingly formulated or taken for granted assumptions that are questionable or even blatantly wrong. 
Fourth, you should use your imagination. The best cooks, and I don't just mean famous chefs, are people who have rich imaginations. We must all find ways, our own ways, to understand and change our economy, and with it the world in which we live and share, in the same way in which we all have to figure out our own ways to eat better, for our own individual health and wallets, for those who are producing food, for those who are not eating enough and or nutritiously, and increasingly for the planet. So what he does, each, each book seems to get to a wider and wider public. Um, you know, he's a great popularizer of these quite subtle economic arguments and, I, and um, signs are, according to the, what he tells me about the sales figures, that this one's gonna be a real humdinger. Next up, uh, Jonathan Glennie came on the blog to write about two really terrible songs. Do they know it's Christmas and we are the world? But Johnny uh, uh, says that, you know, he initially preferred the Bob Geldof one. So he actually says, which is, do they know it's Christmas? I actually like Bob Geldof, he says. At least, at least he bothered. While many will see him as the epitome of the arrogant, world-saving pop star do-gooder, to me he is a guy trying to do the right thing in an energetic and undeniably successful way. Although he did once describe anti-poverty campaigners as wankers dressed as clowns, which was bad. He also dropped me off in the middle of London in the middle of the night uh, where there were no taxis um, once, which was not nice, but that's just a personal note. He made me get out of his car. He decided I was boring. I was very upset. Geldof has probably done more for the cause of Africa than most of his vocal critics. While he is best known for the 1985 Live Aid concert, his work on Africa goes well beyond that. But he and his band of troubadours have also done great damage. He is responsible for the most egregious example of white saviorism of the 20th century, possibly of all time. And it matters because it has influenced a generation of Westerners in their attitudes to Africa. Instead of images of power, resistance, resilience, joy, dignity, we got, do they know it's Christmas? And as the season comes round again, the clanging chimes of doom, one line from the song, will accost you on the most fleeting dash to the high, high street. Great song in a pop sense, just terrible lyrics. The assembled cast of greats paint the bleakest possible picture of Africa, a world of dread and fear where no rains or rivers flow. Yep, that's Africa for you, 100%. Kind-hearted Westerners are urged to help the helpless and, of course, to feed the world. To be fair, it was written at the height of a horrific famine in, in Ethiopia. And to be further fair, the simple humanitarian impulse of the song did inspire many of us to become involved in international issues. But enough generosity to the White Saviour Brigade. It's a heinous song and they should have known better. And that it was remade in 2015 is doubly heinous. And what makes it even heinouser, I'm not sure that's a word, and this is now finally the point of this article, is that on the other side of the Atlantic, a different song was being written for the same occasion, a song which does something very different with the call for international solidarity. Back then, I never really took We Are The World seriously. It felt cheesy, and I preferred the slightly rocky, emotionally stark stadium screaming of Do They Know It's Christmas to its smooth, perfect American cousin. But my musical preferences are irrelevant. The point is the lyrics, the narrative, the story being told. The story the rich West is telling itself. While Bob Geldof and Midge set up a world of us and them, Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson say, we are the world. 
For those readers versed in the MDGs and the SDGs, Millennium Development Goals, Sustainable Development Goals, you could say that Do They Know It's Christmas is a perfect hymn to the MDGs, whereas We Are The World is an SDG anthem. The Millennium Development Goals set of objectives agreed at the UN in 2000, and they were about some countries, the supposedly developed ones, helping other developing countries develop. That was about what can we do to help you? The SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, are different, agreed in 2015. They apply to everyone. We are all in this together. And that's the difference between we are the world and do they know it's Christmas. I think I'm going to stop there. It's a good piece. and I think you should all read it. Almost 40 years later, it feels like our analysis has truly moved on. That today's push to decolonize aid, health, the curriculum, statues and everything else is unstoppable. That we cannot go back to the uncritical, simplistic saviour days symbolised by live aid. But anti-immigrant rhetoric is ramping up all over the world and the great power games of the large countries are tempting millions again to the false haven of nationalism. Make America, China, Britain, France great again. Make, insert country, great for the first time. Scary times. People often ask me how I can still campaign for deep internationalism. Our current campaign for global public investment was described to me once as multilateralism on drugs at a time when things seem to be moving in the opposite direction. I simply reply, if not now, when? Have a good Christmas. And that was the uh, fi uh, pretty much the final uh, salvo. I did have one uh, links I liked, which had some, uh, among other things, a really interesting fundraising video from uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, uh, basically trying to rethink the way they raise money to try and avoid precisely the kind of poverty porn images which Jonathan Glennie was criticising in, um, in his piece. So as usual, I kicked off this year with the uh, list of the most read from Poverty to Power blogs from last year. I'll just give you the last three. The Shameful Implosion of UK Aid, Theories of Change, The Muddy Middle and What to Do About Assumptions, and the most read, perhaps not surprisingly, What to Read on Ukraine. So it's readers, you know, and, and, and these were the ones that got the most reads. Uh, and you can tell roughly from Google Analytics um, that, yeah, who's reading, how many people are reading each, each post. And the mix is kind of fairly standard, I think, for FP2P now, which has been running since 2008. We're in its 15th year now. So there's breaking stories like the Ukraine or UK aid cuts. There's hot topics in aid, localization and white saviorism. But there's also really nerdy inside baseball aid stuff, theories of change, thinking and working politically, complex systems, monitoring evaluation. And all of them get a lot of hits. So I can never actually just decide which is which is preferable. So I'll just keep serving up a mix of all three. Um, but one of the best bits about the blog is not um, the posts, but the comments. Uh, most posts get a minimum of three or four comments, which is quite good for a blog. Some get many more than that. So if you're listening and you're wondering whether to just jot down a couple of paragraphs, please do. It makes a big difference. It widens the discussion away from just me or the people writing guest posts. And I really enjoy them. So do keep them coming, please. The next post was a really interesting uh, piece in The Guardian. Is Extinction Rebellion, Extinction Rebellion really quitting? So The Guardian has an excellent 
daily news summary called First Edition. You can subscribe for free, uh, which, which gives you the headlines, but also an in-depth conversation about a topic that the editor chooses, and then he grabs one of its specialist journalists. And the one that I was really uh, intrigued by was one on uh, with the editor and um, Archie Bland and the environment correspondent Damien Gale on a statement that Extinction Rebellion put out on New Year's Day saying, we quit. Well, it's not quite that simple. Here's the Guardian's analysis. This is less a resignation than a reorientation. XR is promising a temporary shift away from public disruption as a primary tactic. But they also say that they will now prioritise attendance over arrest and relationships over roadblocks. That is a hell of a soundbite. Relationships over roadblocks. As we stand together and become impossible to ignore. XR links this new focus to a bet that tumult in the wider political climate means that people may now be more receptive to the message. The conditions for change in the UK have never been more favourable. It's time to seize the moment. The confluence of multiple crises presents us with a unique opportunity to mobilise a move beyond traditional divides. To that end, they are planning a protest outside the Houses of Parliament on 21st of April, which they hope will attract 100,000 people. Their view is that it can be alienating towards an everyday trade unionist to have disruptive protests that are stopping people getting to work, getting criticised on talk radio and so on. Damien Gale again. The new approach is meant to make that 21st of April protest more palatable to those people. So interesting bet they're taking. I have to say in the middle of a recession, um, I hope they're right. I'm worried that people will actually not respond to the message, but we'll see. Anyway, a bit more from that piece. How did Extinction Rebellion get here? A casual observer might view this news as a sudden break with the past, but debates over whether to stick to a radical approach or seek to broaden the movement have been part of XR's evolution from very early on. And, they, and there are links to long reads and so on. Um, the, de the debate was tied to a sense that leading figures had failed to recognise the narrowness of their own perspective as older, middle-class, mostly white activists. A proposed shutdown of Heathrow, Heathrow Airport was abandoned, but taken on by a new group led by XR co-founder co Roger Hallam without much success. Later, rebellions charted a similar course to the initial April action, but drew less attention as direct action became a more familiar approach. There are, of course, new groups doing direct action, making a big splash. Insulate Britain, Just Stop Oil, which got a lot of coverage when they threw tomato soup at Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers. No damage was caused to the paintings. Got to say that. Got a lot of, got a lot of um, a profile. But did they lead to change? So this is where they get really interesting. One of the most interesting and persuasive cases for the emergence of a less abrasive strategy in the climate protest movement is also much misunderstood. Its proponents insist that they are not repudiating what has already happened, but building on it. In a recent episode of the Accidental Gods podcast, great title, I'm going to have to subscribe to that, Rupert Reed, the Exile co-founder, who is now one of the most prominent voices of the moderate flank, put it like this. The greatest compliment we can pay now to what we accomplished in Extinction Rebellion and the other parts of the radical flank in 2019 is to exploit it fully, to encourage and enable a far larger group of people to march through the widened Overton window. Pure guardian that they don't even think they have to explain what the Overton window is. It's the window of what is publicly acceptable in terms of public debate. 
This argument might be seen as suggesting a future where radical and moderate approaches can be symbiotic rather than opposed, with one approach inculcating a sense of urgency and the other helping a critical mass of people to see what they can do about it. One theory is that the radical flank can actually make the more moderate groups more popular because they don't look extreme in comparison, Damien said. But Reid does not seem to see diminishing returns in the continuation of disruptive protests and implies that they are largely a spent force. Does seem to, sorry, does seem to see diminishing returns. In this fascinating YouTube conversation from last January with Roger Hallam, he says that exiles are successes were quite a thin achievement that have not come to dominate everyday politics. We have not moved into emergency mode. Others disagree that a more moderate approach will help solve this. And then there's a link to an October piece answering read from Just Stop Oil's Indigo Rumbelow. Why do they all have such posh names? Uh, argues that disruption is an electric shock that calls one people to see the horror of what's unfolding before us. And Roger Hallam suggests in the same video that a different approach could be actively counterproductive. If you present a moderate flank proposition, you're sort of letting people off the hook. So this is absolutely where my students are at uh, in the course on, on activism and how change happens. Um, it's, this, it's this debate on engagement versus protest, insider versus outsider. I'm definitely gonna have to get my students reading this piece. And the final one I uh, post, I've, I've put up this so far this year, Book review, Africa 2.0, Insider Continent's Communications Revolution. Um, and the publisher's blurb says, Africa 2.0 provides an important history of how two technologies, mobile calling and internet, were made available to millions of sub-Saharan Africans and the impact they have had on their lives. The book deals with the political challenges of liberalization and privatization that needed to be in place in order for these technologies to be built. It analyzes how the mobile phone fundamentally changed communications in sub-Saharan Africa and the ways Africans have made these technologies part of their lives, opening up a very different future. And just to give you a sense of what's changed, in 1986, sub-Saharan Africa had fewer phone lines than Manhattan. By 2019, 45%, just under half of Africans, had a mobile phone and 25%, a quarter, had access to mobile internet. Extraordinary transformation. So the author is Russell Southwood, uh, uh, and he's been working on this stuff for 20 years, editing and writing a weekly e-letter on telecoms and internet in Africa. So he absolutely gets it. He's a total uh, geek amongst geeks. Um, and the book is divided into three sections. First deals with the hardware, the super rapid spread of mobiles, and the much more painful and slow rise of the internet. Part two, two looks at how these were used, things like mobile money and e-commerce. And part three explores the wider impact on politics, culture and society. And of these, I thought the first two sections were stronger. And I think that's probably where the author's strengths lie. Unfortunately, I was mainly interested in the third, the impact on politics, culture, society. And I thought it was a bit patchy there. He makes some interesting points on the politics and political economy of digital, um, you know, the, the amount of money that's generated in terms of tax, $17 billion in Africa in 2019, jobs, 650,000 directly, and a further 1.4 million in informal jobs, all those people selling mobile money from kiosks. Sounds like an underestimate to me. Um, and he's good on digitization with African characteristics, the adaptations that took place as part of the spread of mobiles. Um, things like, the, you know, uh, 
the way advertising by competing mobile companies fueled the growth of a new generation of private broadcasters or the way that remittances uh, had to be accommodated with prepaid uh, um, uh, uh, cards. But, and he's good on the divides, you know, the, the, the exclusion, the inequalities in access, but I didn't think it had a real discussion on what he calls key changes in behaviours. Yeah, he, he claims to have discussed aspiration, individuality, sexual norms and trust, and flags them at the top of the concluding chapter, but they only get six pages in total, which is not really adequate. It's as though the author is sufficiently aware to acknowledge the issues, but doesn't quite know how to step out of the tech bubble and find what to read or who to talk to to unpack them. And I thought there was a big contrast with Nanjala Nyabola's great book, Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, who's much more my cup of tea. She focuses, focuses on power and politics in Kenya, not just the tech. Also, in contrast to Nyabola, this book largely portrays the spread of digital as an unalloyed good, not much here on the use of digital to whip up division, hatred and violence, particularly around disputed elections, which is a powerful part of Nyabola's book. Nevertheless, if you're interested in understanding the rise of digital, this is a really useful book. Um, perhaps see it as a complement to more politically informed discussions like digital democracy. Okay, that's enough from me. Probably far too much for you. Uh, I look forward to chatting over the course of this year, uh, talking in a week or two. Bye.